Welcome to Chaplain Shad's podcast. Uh, today we will be going over um, the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll do a survey of that. Um, the theme for 1 Corinthians comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And it reads this way. I'm reading from the uh, New King James Version. It says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, and, uh, but that you be, you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Again, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there, are, there be no divisions among you, but that you will be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The theme for 1 Corinthians is unity. There should be unity among all Christians. Now, the way that we practice our Christianity might be a little bit different, but there are some things that we need to be uh, unified on. We need to be unified on the specific doctrines, the biblical doctrines of unity, the specific doctrines of love, the specific doctrines of who Christ is. So where is uh, Corinth at? Uh, what is the history and the setting of uh, the city of Corinth? Well, it was located on an isthmus and located on the northwest trade route and was a shortcut between the Aegean and the Adriatic Seas. Remember the book of Acts tells us that as we read the book of Acts, we're going to see the gospel spread from Judea to Samaria uh, and to the ends of the earth. Now we're getting to those ends of the earth for Paul's in his missionary journeys. Uh, there's a canal there. Uh, and these were boats. Uh, the boats were uh, would be located on the courtyard or conveyor belt of sorts and pulled by slaves to the other side of the isthmus so uh this was a very uh rich type of area that would allow that uh to happen where there would be a conveyor belt as well as uh, these slaves that would make the boats go from one side of the canal to the other side of the canal the culture it was a city Oh, it was a city of commerce, and for the Greek athletic games, there was a crossroads for the nations. There are two major time periods for the book of Corinth, or the city of Corinth. First is uh, the leaders among the Aegean League uh, had a falling out with Rome and was ordered to be destroyed, and it lay dormant for about 100 years. The second city, which we're really talking about, is uh, started in 44 BC. Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth and gave it to the freedmen or slaves that had given uh, received their freedom. By the second century, Corinth was the wealthiest city in the world. Corinth was notorious for its immorality, uh, and so the carnal the carnal, carnal uh, that was even um, coined to be Carasano. It was just not a good place to live. It was uh, sexual immorality, which the book of Corinth talks about. 
uh, is something that you would think only existed today, but it existed long before today. Um, and it meant anything connected with a sexual vice and characterized by immorality. That's what Corinth was. It was a sexual perverse city. It was ripe for a place to build a church. In Paul's time, uh, and we see it in Acts chapter 18, uh, he was in Corinth for at least a year and met with Priscilla and Aquila, who fled from Rome in AD 49. Silas and Paul also joined him at Corinth. Here Paul wrote both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. The Jews came in and told Galileo that Paul's teaching was teaching something different. And Galileo, uh, Galileo uh, threw, uh, threw the Jews out, and the Jews went out and beat up a guy named Sosthenes for no reason. So when was it written? Um, it was written, uh, 1 Corinthians was written in 52 or 55 AD, somewhere in that period during Paul's third missionary journey. Probably wrote it from the city of Ephesus. Second uh, Corinthians, Paul uh, wrote in Macedonia, probably around 57 AD, again on his third missionary journey. Uh, so what does Paul's visit to Corinth looks like? Well, again, his first visit we said was in Acts chapter 18, described his second visit, uh, which is uh, a sorrowful visit that he refers to uh, in 2 Corinthians 2.1. There may have been a third visit. Uh, he at least promised a visit in 2 Corinthians 12.14. Uh, and, or 12 or uh, 14 and 2 Corinthians 13 verses 1 and 2. There is a belief out there that there's actually four letters to the Corinths. So let's look at that. Uh, Corinthians A or 1 Corinthians uh, is a previous letter that is referred to in 1 Corinthians 5 9. So this we do not have record of a first letter but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. So we don't have a copy of that, and we don't have any transcripts of that. Uh, second, uh, or 1 Corinthians, or Corinthians B, is the book that we have. Uh, there's possible a... Uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, a, a third Corinthians, we would call that Corinthians C. And we read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says, uh, verse 9 says, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. So we believe that Paul wrote another letter, but we don't have record of that. But... Um, 2 Corinthians is what we would consider uh, Corinthians D. So uh, there are, are references in 1st and 2nd Corinthians that leads us to believe that there are additional letters that Paul wrote, just didn't make it to the Bible. Um, Then we uh, have the theological contributions. 
Uh, Paul talks about eschatology or the study of last things. Uh, Paul uh, and his already not yet eschatology. What does that mean? Well, that means that we're saved today, but we don't realize the fullness of our salvation until we get to heaven. So we're already saved, but yet there is still a salvation to come. Uh, Also, believers have entered the kingdom of God as spirit inhabitants of the body. But the eschaton, which is the final, which comes at the second coming, or the coming when Jesus comes, has not yet been uh, fulfilled yet. Paul talks about ethics. Uh, Correcting the ethical view, uh, uh, eschatological, uh, the the, uh, ethical and the theological issues related to faith and living. Um talking about eating certain foods or how we're to live what's the body look like uh, what about the spiritual gifts but Paul also talks about um, following commands of Christ in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians he talks about what marriage looks like and who should be married and what happens if there's a divorce in chapter 7 and then because of this sexual immorality there seems to be some type of incest uh, relationships going on. Then he talks about there's an ecclesiological ecclesiology, a study of the people of God, a study of church. Uh, Paul talks about the the local church is God's temple, uh, the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit inhabits us. We are the church. And the church, we are Christ's body. I was running the other day and listening to the City of God by St. Augustine. And he was talking about the book of Haggai and how God says that, the, that, that the, this temple will be more glorious than the former. And... St. Augustine doesn't believe that he's talking about the building of the temple that the the Jews and the exiles were rebuilding. He thinks that God is referring to us. We are a greater temple than the previous temple. The temple that Solomon built, the one that got destroyed in 589, 586 uh, B.C. It's more glorious than the temple that... Uh, that, that Herod rebuilt, that the Jews experienced in, uh, from uh, 4 B.C. to 70 A.D. Why? Because we get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides with us. That's a beauty. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't uh, indwell people. Rather, He came and rested on people. So let's break down the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapters 1 through 4, we read about divisions. Some are from Paul, and some are from Peter, and some are from Apollos. And Paul says, Ah, none of us died for you on the cross. Uh, today we have that same type of, of mindset. Oh, I followed John MacArthur. I followed this guy. I followed that guy. All of those guys may be great guys. But they didn't die on the cross for us. Jesus did. And we should be unified in following Jesus. 
personality cults were arising and they were practicing asceticism. Uh, one who says that the body is evil and deprives it. That came out of the early form of Gnosticism. We have this ideal of spiritual versus carnal Christians. In chapter 5, we have this immorality of the church. There was incest, sexual immorality. There was a need for church discipline. Listen to what chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 5, he goes, Deliver such a, a person or one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved the day of the Lord Jesus. Don't hang around with those people. We must discipline those who are not practicing godly character. Uh, Paul is exercising his apostolic, uh, apostle, apostles' authority. And also, what is this destruction of the flesh? Satan, Satan can kill him or outside the protection of God, which would help him to repent. What, what is it? We, we really don't know. Some say that the destruction of the flesh means remove the protection of the church from him. So many times, especially today, over the past 10 years or so, we've seen this ideal in the church where, where ministers were, were sexually uh, molesting or abusing women and children. And they were protected because they were inside the church and the church didn't want to prosecute them. Well, well that may be what Paul is saying. Get him out of the church. Let Satan deal with him or let God deal with him outside of it. Could mean that Paul mostly uses flesh as a reference to the sinful nature of a man. Yet he is also uses it just as flesh or life of man. Therefore, uh, we must take that context and to determine the definition. Some commentators believe that this man is mentioned in 2 Corinthians, later on repented and was recommended to be uh, to re-enter the church by Paul. In chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that that Christians should not, should not sue other church members. You shouldn't take them, you shouldn't take other Christians to court. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, they were forbidden to, to when you loan money to a fellow Jew, you were forbidden to charge them interest. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians talks about marriage issues in the church. Gordon Fee says this, to be married or formally married, you stay how you are. In other words, if you're married, don't get divorced. If you're divorced, don't get remarried. Um, and that we see that uh, in chapter 7 verses 1 through 16. Uh, there's no abstinence in marriage. Now, uh, if you are deployed in the military, there will be abstinence in your marriage. Uh, but for the most part, uh, Paul tells us that we're to stay apart sexually from our partner uh, only for a agreed upon, agreed upon time. Uh, singleness or marriage for the unmarried and for the widow. So uh, Paul says that he wishes that we would stay like he is, that we would remain single 
Because if you're single, you have more opportunity to spend time worshiping and serving God. Paul says uh, in verses 25 through 28 that no divorce for Christian partners. If your partner is a Christian or a non-Christian and you're a Christian, don't divorce them. And no divorce for mixed couples. Now, we shouldn't have married someone that's not a Christian. So, Paul tells us that we shouldn't be unequally yoked. But, if we find ourselves unequally yoked, we should seek God and continue to love our spouses. Because love is a choice. We don't like to hear that in America, especially in the American churches. But love is a choice. We choose to love one another. Uh, in verse 1, something what Paul says, Paul is saying or repeating something that he wrote. So what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1? He says this, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So someone wrote to Paul about marriage, and Paul is responding to that. Really the issue in all of this is self-control. We are to be self-controlled. That means when we don't like something, we're to control our attitudes. When we don't agree with something, we're to control our attitudes. Um, in verses 10 through 16, Paul is, is talking to the married couple. Keep your marriage vows. That is the guiding principle. Paul says, stay as you are when you were called, when you were married. In verses 25 through 40, he talks about virgins. Singleness is preferred, but not required. Paul's reason for singleness. In 729 through 35, Paul says this. If you find yourself single, here's what Paul says in verse uh, 29 through 35. He says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as those who had none. Those who weep as though they did, did not weep. Those who rejoice as they did not rejoice. And those who buy as they had did not possess. And those who use this world not as misusing it. The form of this world is passing away. But I do not want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of this world, for the Lord. I'm sorry. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But if he is married, cares about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. And she that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the one who is married cares about the things of the world. How she is to please her husband. And this I say to your to your own prophet. Not that I may be uh, may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So there is a purpose. And singleness and in marriage there is no sin Paul would go on to say that uh, it is better for some people to marry than to burn in their lust Paul talks about in verses 8 9 Christian liberty 
uh, food offered to uh, idols. The principle here is that if you do something that offends a brother, it is wrong to do so. Um, Paul talks about the veiling of the women. A way a woman uh, showed respectfulness was to, to wear uh, something over her head. It's a symbol of subordination uh, to men, but it's also brought respect to women. The man uh, must not have his head covered because he is the sign of, a, of because of his authority. Chapters 10 and 11 deal with uh, the Lord's Supper in the church. So there are several views of the Lord's Supper. You have transubstantiation. Uh, this is the Roman Catholic view that when you take communion, the bread literally becomes the body of Christ and the blood literally becomes the blood of Christ. Uh, then Luther and some Protestant reformers believe in uh, the consubstantiation, which becomes the actual blood after the ingestion. So once you swallow the bread, once you swallow the blood, then it becomes um, the blood and the body of Christ. Uh, as a, a Southern Baptist, uh, I believe that it is symbolic. Uh, the radical reformers in Zwingli uh, saw that, and, and as I do, see the elements, the bread, the wafer, and the juice or the wine are, represent uh, the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, there are distinctions, uh, distinct uh, traditions that abound in the church. Who administers the Lord's Supper? Um, the Southern Baptists believe that, that only people ordained can do that. Um, what is eaten? It's, it's unleavened bread. It's, it's a wafer. It's, uh, it, it reminds us of what happened in the Exodus and the Passover. The leaven is purged. Because the leaven corrupts the whole body. Uh, what is drunk? Fruit of the vine, non-alcoholic, uh, or other wines? Um, that's always an interesting question that I get as a minister and as a chaplain. When Jesus turned uh, water into wine, well, there's, there's several words for alcohol or for wine there. So... Was it fruit of the vine, which is really grape juice, or was it alcoholic? And, and was it the wine that we drink today like? Um, being deployed, there are things that we can't drink where we are. So, uh, you know, the water in, in first century Judaism, or not Judaism, but Israel, the water wasn't potable, so they would ferment some grape juice, some grapes, and it would be 20 part water, one part fermented drink, just to kill all the bacteria. So what does it really mean? Uh, what did Paul mean by the collections for the poor? Um, who can partake of the Lord's Supper? I know that I recently encountered a chaplain who could not, because of his faith tradition, uh, perform uh, communion for his soldiers because they believed in a closed communion. Only people of his uh, local church, whereas I believe in open communion that as long as you are a professed believer, you can partake of the Lord's Supper. Um, and then uh, what about children? If they believe, can they, can they take partake. Uh, my kids got saved. Two of my kids got saved at the age of 10 or below. 
they partake in the Lord's Supper. For the one who has not received Christ, it is a great opportunity for me to teach him uh, what it means, what, what this represents. What is the meaning of the Lord's Supper communion? What's a memorial to remember uh, Christ's sacrifice? It's an opportunity for us to examine ourselves as well as the local body. Uh, it's also to anticipate Christ's return. It's to proclaim that Jesus died and was buried and rose again on the third day. It's, it's really evangelism. It's a time to celebrate who Christ is. And then uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14 deal with um, spiritual gifts. Uh, so the, the criteria, Jesus is Lord in verse, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He's the one who gives. Not everybody has all of the gifts, but we each have at minimum one gift. There is a need for diversity because in the diversity of the church, there is a unity there. Uh, just as there is diversity in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, God planned salvation or redemption. Jesus performed redemption and the Holy Spirit seals our redemption. Um, so there is diversity in unity and unity and diversity. Uh, there is a, a two-fold application metaphor in the spiritual gifts. Uh, there are uh, three ideals or three views on what tongues in chapter 12 is talking about. Is it a heavenly language, a language that some people um, are given as a gift? Is it an ecstatic language? This is the Pentecostals view, uh, which means that it's a second blessing. It's a second baptism. Uh, here's the local problem, though, is, is bringing the activity from a pagan temple. Uh, did, was this something that they practiced in the pagan temples and they brought it over? Regardless of the interpretation, the usage in 1 Corinthians is something different from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the word uh, language or tongues is dialectos. Uh, they were preaching the gospel in known languages. In Corinthians, it seems to be an ecstatic nature uh, done to edify self. And that has no place in worship because worshiping is to worship God, not us, not individuals, not teachers, not preachers. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the gospel. So tongues should not be in the church unless there is an interpretation or interpreter. Today, some of those who speak in tongues view it as a measure of spiritual maturity. I do not think that the Bible teaches that. Uh, this was what Paul was trying to say. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to say that there's a more excellent way. What good is it if I speak in tongues, but I do not have love? So Paul says that love is the better gift. There's a necessity for love. There's a character of love, and there's a permanence of love. Love covers all. If they had love in the church, they would not be vying for power and divisions in the church. Chapter 14, we see the the need for intelligibility in the assembly. There's, there's a greater gift. Prophecy in the Old Testament was that telling that Jesus was going to come. In the New Testament, it is a fourth 
foretelling prophecy. Meaning if you do A, B is going to happen. Uh, and then Paul orders the gifts in verse chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. The ordering of the tongues and the prophecies in chapter uh, verses 26 through 33. The ordering of women in verses 34 and 35. And this was probably because women were disrupting the service by not covering their head. It was all cultural, so to speak. Chapter 15, maybe the greatest chapter of Corinthians, talks about uh, resurrection. Resurrection was a foreign uh, ideal, not just to the Greeks, but to everybody. Uh, when Jesus was declared the Son of God by the power of the resurrection, Verses uh, 1 through 11, there's a basis, the resurrection of Christ. It's the proof that Jesus is God. Verses 12 through 13, we see the certainty of the resurrection. <laughs> if Christ is not raised, we're all fools. But because Christ is raised, we have a hope. Verses of 29 through 34, there is a resurrection body. Uh, Paul says that there, there's an analogy of seeds and bodies. Something has to die for something new to come. And the application is, uh, of those analogies are in verses 45 through 49. Now there's the assurance of the triumph. We will overcome death because Jesus did. Well, I hope that you will take this time and that you would read uh, 1 Corinthians and that you would find...